Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. Healthcare boards today find themselves in a challenging position with respect to their basic duty for oversight of patient care and safety. For example, they're retooling management to board reporting protocols to make sure that mission critical patient care and safety issues are reviewed at the highest governance level, as recent case law seems to suggest. They're working to identify the best way to engage with management on COVID as the country continues to move away from pandemic emergency to a predictable endemic phase of living with the virus. They're also considering their role in helping the organization prepare for what the White House recently projected as a significant wave of COVID infections, hospitalizations, and deaths this fall and winter. And they're considering whether, and if so, how, the organization should use its public voice in speaking to the larger public health issues of the day. In all of this, there's a basic understanding that the board won't be retreating anytime soon from a high level of engagement with management on patient care and safety matters. It's just a question of what's the best form of that engagement. And to help us answer that question, we're delighted to be joined by our old friend, Jamie Orlikoff. As many of you know, Jamie is president of Orlikoff & Associates, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in healthcare governance and leadership, strategy, quality, patient safety, and organizational development. Jamie is the National Advisor on Governance and Leadership to the American Hospital Association. He's been involved in leadership, quality, and strategy issues for over 40 years, and since 1985 has worked with hospital and health system governing boards to strengthen their overall effectiveness and their oversight of strategy and quality. And I'm also pleased to be joined by my partner, Sandy DeVarco, who leads McDermott Health's advisory on patient care and safety and accreditation issues. Many of you will recognize Sandy as the prime author of our recent client memo series on vaccination mandates and workplace safety developments. Jamie and Sandy, welcome both of you back to the program. And let's dive into it right away and Jamie turn to you. Uh, you know, it seems to me from my reading of the op-ed pages and other news media reports that our society in general has somehow given up or is over the pandemic, even though it seems that the pandemic isn't done with us. Is that also true for hospitals? If so, what are the implications? And from your perspective, what can we expect in this regard? Well, first, thanks so much for having me again, Michael. Um, but to your question, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of... Um, of wishing and hoping uh, substituting for uh, factual analysis and planning, even at the hospital level. And, um, you know, I, so I'm afraid we're getting blindsided or run the risk of getting blindsided by kind of a stealth uh, COVID surge, which is occurring right now. Um, and it's it's good to step back and, and reflect on history. In fact, there was, you know, Thomas Dewey, the great educational philosopher, had a wonderful uh, statement. He said, we do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. And so it's really important that um, hospital leadership uh, take the time to reflect on what they've been through, how they are personally responding to this, and be able to segregate assumption from truth. And one, one great reflection to kind of ease into your question, Michael, is if we think about the flu pandemic of 1918, um, in, in several municipalities, most notably New York, the worst mortality rate occurred not in 1918, 
not in 1919, but rather in 1920, precisely because people were tired of the pandemic and they gave up. And they said, we're done and the pandemic is over. And just because they want it to be over doesn't mean that it is over. And so unfortunately, that's a lot of what's happening here. Uh, great political uh, resistance to mask mandates, a fatigue in the general population. And to your point, unfortunately, this is percolating uh, to the level of uh, executive management and boards. And you know, one reason is uh, you know, we're people and we feel the same way and we're exhausted. But the other reason is our attention is now divided and, and, and kind of focused on another consequence of the pandemic, which is a devastating financial situation. So many organizations, leaders are focusing on, first of all, recognizing the extent of the problem, uh, which is, which is, and I use the word intentionally devastating, um, and then trying to figure out how to fix it. And, and, and they don't have the bandwidth to consider the implications of growing hospitalizations. And you know, remember, we made the same mistake with the first uh, Omicron wave, which was we said, well, it's a milder illness. And so we kept repeating that false mantra, even as hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and then deaths began to rise. And people are saying that now. I've had CEOs say, oh, no, the, you know, we're not having a real problem with COVID. Uh, it's, it's a much milder thing. It's like the flu. Everyone's getting it. And then I'll say, what's going on with your hospitalizations? And invariably, everyone will say they're up. So hospitalizations are going up. We're starting to see ICU admissions going up. And in the last week, we've started to see deaths going up. So I'm afraid we're in a state of denial societally. And as you alluded to in your question, I think that denial is unfortunately percolating to the C-suites and the boardrooms of our health systems and hospitals. Jamie, are you concerned that boards are not adequately exercising their monitoring duties? They're not because they're reluctant to lean in again with management two and a half years after the fact and say, hey, fellas, what about these statistics? And all my neighbors are getting sick and my kids are getting sick. Can you come back and update the board on this? Is there reluctance to go to go back to the well on, on something that may otherwise seem rather obvious? Interesting question. And so the short answer is yes. But the real interesting unpacking of that is why? And and it's for two you know, very different but related reasons. And again, it's the financial crisis which for many hospitals and health systems is nothing less than existential. So some boards are not leaning into COVID because they are appropriately you know, trying to figure out how they can redefine their level of engagement for a financial turnaround um, and recognizing that if something is an existential crisis, it, it therefore meets the definition of a board issue and boards are trying to figure out you know, how to deal with this. On the other side of the spectrum, those boards who had a very different relationship with their executives, where the executives basically, you know, ran a dog and pony show with the boards, where, you know, where they followed the old, you know, what, what we used to call mushroom approach to governance, you know, keep the board in the dark and cover them in manure. Uh, the, the executives who took that approach are in deep trouble right now because their boards are engaging, but engaging in a way that is recriminatory, saying, wait a minute, how, how did our finances turn south so quickly? And isn't this your fault? Uh, so, so because of all this obfuscation, very few organizational leaders and boards included are keying into COVID and saying, what do we do about this now? I mean, there, there, there's just a high level of distraction, not a great deal of bandwidth. A lot of CEOs are resigning kind of ahead of the posse. A lot of CEOs are resigning because they're burned out and, and, and have PTSD. And now we're starting to see a lot of boards 
um, inappropriately, in my opinion, hold executives accountable for the you know sudden and severe financial uh, crisis that we're in because of COVID. So for a variety of reasons, no, I don't think it's getting the attention that it needs to get. Sandy, let me turn to a, a different perspective on the, the issue that Jamie describes. Uh, if uh, boards and management are having trouble grappling with with the stealth pandemic, uh, do you have good news? How are the what, what are the what are the regulatory authorities suggesting? Have they kept sufficient pace with the demands of the pandemic as it plays out and as you appropriately said, lingers on? You know, I give the classic lawyer answer of it depends, which means it really depends on your perspective and what part of the regulatory uh, environment we're talking about. On the ground, you know, following up on what Jamie said, you know, I think the the competing pressures right now between you know admissions not just for COVID but for patients that are incredibly sick because care was delayed during the pandemic when certain aspects of healthcare operations were not available because they were busy with the pandemic and dealing with some of those restrictions. Um, you've got burnt out staff, you've got um, now additional focus and requirements around infection control. You know, Any surveyor that comes into a hospital, for example, is drilling down hard on infection control and compliance with the various uh, mandates like the vaccination mandate um, and other focuses from uh, a safety perspective. So on the ground, I think the the regulatory environment and the way that regulations have come through have kept pace in that they have added uh, yet more requirements, and that's put yet more requirements on frontline staff, which trickles up really to management and the board to try to track all of those things. So as good as it can be to have some of this additional attention, and it puts additional pressure on all of these uh, layers, if you will, of a healthcare facility and healthcare system to try to keep up. Uh, and one of the things that will be interesting to see going forward is how that accountability also flows up. You know, it has been long known that it, when problems are found at a hospital or healthcare facility for licensing or survey matters, they don't just look around at the people in the scrubs to determine why there is a problem. They look up to management and ultimately to the board that's responsible uh, for the quality of care at an institution. So, you know, some of the oversight and monitoring that you and Jamie were speaking about becomes incredibly important. And that the need to better understand what some of this new environment and these new requirements are, and to be sure that those are part of the pulse that is being taken on a regular basis becomes incredibly important. Sandy, let me ask you a follow-up question on that and something with which you were so closely involved with over the winter. Is there a, a, do, do the regulatory authorities and courts have a credibility issue with management and the board following what I guess they would say the ping-pong effect of all of the decisions regarding vaccination and workforce safety? Are, are you concerned that management and the board might be tuning out what the courts have to say and what the regulators have to say? Yeah, I think there was a time period there where it was really like the Wild West. There was there was no way to know, um, were you in the right or in the wrong with some of these issues? Because the regulatory bodies and various court decisions left everyone's head spinning and you weren't quite sure what you needed to do. Um, I think the vaccination mandate has largely, you know, the dust is basically settled. I don't think it's going to, to shift much in healthcare. We're going to have to see what OSHA does. There's um, an understanding that, you know, while some of their initial requirements uh, were defeated in the courts and were not implemented, that OSHA is taking a very active role now in looking at healthcare facilities uh, to the point that um, healthcare facilities are having to educate the OSHA surveyors when they come on site because they don't really know what to do in a hospital. Um, 
but there's definitely a, a common understanding now of how to handle the, the mandate. I think it's becoming uh, a different question now as time goes by, as Jamie noted, and as we've all seen with the way that the pandemic has evolved over time, you now have a circumstance where you know many individuals who are uh, contracting COVID uh, and finding themselves, you know, whether mildly ill or quite ill, are actually vaccinated. And so in areas where there was a significant pushback to the vaccination mandate, some of the questions <laughs> we're even hearing from executives now are, well, why do we have this mandate if there's not, <laughs> if we still have beds full of people that have COVID who are vaccinated? So you're there's still a messaging and a communication need there. Um, the messaging, as we all know, has been very spotty, both to the general population and to healthcare providers over the course of the pandemic. And it's made it very hard for leadership and boards to be confident in their decisions and to be able to communicate to their own teams about why these things remain important. Jamie, let me turn back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago that, that caught my attention. And I'm just kind of uh, concerned uh, from a board perspective is is the financial crisis or the looming financial crisis uh, and the uh, quality oversight crisis, is it one or the other from a board agenda perspective? Does the board have the capacity or must it make the capacity to address both the financial concerns that you've raised and the clinical concerns and the quality concerns raised by the stealth surge? How do you help a board design an agenda so they have enough time to deal with both? Oh, that's a wonderful question, Michael. And, and I'll give the lawyer's answer, even though I'm not a lawyer. It depends. And it depends a little <laughs> bit about the circumstances of the individual hospital and the system. Unfortunately, many hospitals and systems find themselves literally in an existential crisis, a financial crisis. Um, for those hospitals, they're not paying attention to quality. Uh, uh, you know, they're 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 focusing simply on riding the ship financially, and I think it's arguably appropriate that they do that. Um, it's you know simply because many organizations are now facing um, really fundamental governance mission questions, uh, almost the equivalent of of crisis standards of care rationing questions that you know, that clinicians had to deal with in the height of the pandemic, you know, making resource allocation decisions uh, that basically determined what patients would live and what patients would die. Um, this is now happening at in an organizational and systemic level for boards and boards that are facing this crisis um, have to start confronting these types of decisions and asking mission types of questions. Is it better that we retrench? Is it better that we tolerate less than optimal quality um, and focus on surviving so that we can remain in business for the benefit of our community and, and then live to fight another day and then focus on these issues later? Or do we focus on doing what's right and risk going out of business and leave our community in the lurch? Um, and that's a governance question. That's a mission-based question. It's a very, very difficult question. But I would say even for organizations that aren't facing the extent of the financial crisis that rises to a level of an existential threat, we've already seen nationwide backsliding on quality and safety. You know, uh, prior to the pandemic, we'd see we we had a 37 percent reduction across the board in central line bloodstream infections. Uh, we had lots of things that were heading in the right direction, and those trends have all reversed uh, since the pandemic. There have been several studies that have shown uh, you know, 30 to 50% increases in the rates of central line associated bloodstream infections 
catheter-associated urinary tract infections, you know, MR, MRSA. And the reason I give you these examples is because these are kind of benchmarks of systemic quality. Um, you know, if you're if you can't uh, control these, uh, it's indicative of a systemic problem for quality in the same way that increase in sepsis rates would uh, would indicate that. And we're seeing that go up. So, um, you know, so uh, I'm pretty certain we haven't seen the data yet that we're also going to see um, when we do the retrospective analysis spikes in um, uh, medically related, uh, you know, iatrogenic preventable death, uh, you know, because of this. So, you know, so we have to pay attention to it. And my advice would be, you know, that boards that are not, you know, in an immediate existential crisis really need to devote the time to this. Um, all boards are finding that they have to spend more time, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and frequently now, as Sandy talked about, that kind of uh, up percolation of burnout, uh, you know, and if PTSD is now starting to penetrate into the boardroom, I'm, I'm starting to see, you know, board members uh, say, I can't spend this time anymore. I, I've had a number of, of boards where they can't find the next chairperson because no one wants to take the role because it's too burdensome, because it takes too much time, because it's too psychologically demanding. Um, you know, so um, ideally, Michael, the answer to your question would be yes. Practically, I think we're in a survival mode for many organizations right now. And, um, and so I'm afraid that quality is getting short shrift and safety is getting short shrift. Jamie, where does supply chain oversight weigh into all this? So there's some, uh, some conversation that the board has an increased obligation to exercise oversight of supply chain issues, which is obviously an issue that's historically been the role of management. But uh, do you see supply chain affecting quality of care to the point where the board needs to lean in more on that as well, assuming they'd have the time to do so? Well, that, that's a big assumption. So, the, so, so the short answer once again is yes. But it's just like you know, uh, what what is the straw that breaks the the camel's back? I mean, many boards have never heard of, you know, uh, you know, iron based uh, contrast dye, and now suddenly there's a shortage of this, uh, and and with, which which is having reverberating quality implications. And the problem with the su supply chain issue is it's really difficult to. Uh, have an accurate assessment of where your risks are. I mean, go back pre-pandemic. I mean, when Hurricane Irma hit Puerto Rico, it destroyed the only plant in the United States that made a very prosaic medical uh, you know, piece of equipment, which was IV bags and IV tubing. And that's really unsexy and not highly sophisticated. But if you don't have IV bags and IV tubing, you cannot administer medication to patients in the hospital uh, intravenously. So, so the, again, the short answer to your question is yes. But the, the broader answer is, well, how? How does a board do that? What do I look at if I'm a board? How, how do I predict what the next supply chain shortage is going to be? Because it's such an integrated network of, of, of codependencies that any one little thing that, that on the face of it is irrelevant or doesn't matter that, that suddenly becomes unavailable can disrupt the whole system. So, you know, so it's really a systemic issue of how do we think about and, uh, and, and then try to ensure the integrity of the entire supply chain. And man, that's, that is just such, you know, that, that is just such a difficult thing to conceptualize, you know, let alone get a handle on and control. Uh, that I'm finding many boards, their eyes just glaze over. You know, they they you know they don't know how to get a handle on it. And and I'll be very honest, I don't know what to advise them about how to get a handle on it. Be just because it is such a an amorphous, overarching issue. It's like get a handle on a cloud. Um, I, you know, I so short answer yes, longer answer don't have the bandwidth, don't have the time, don't have the knowledge. You know, um, and so let's just hope hope 
you know, uh, that we don't get caught short with another supply chain crisis. And I'm afraid that's where many boards find themselves. Sandy, you and I have talked about this issue in the context of uh, the Boeing case and mission critical risks. And we've been chatting with our clients about the importance of identifying mission critical risks in the quality area of two boards. Uh, uh, do you share Jamie's concern about su uh, supply chain management oversight becoming that kind of mission critical risk? I, I, I do. And it's one of those things that I think sort of lurked in the background, because as Jamie noted, from time to time, something would come up like the hurricane in Puerto Rico or some other supply issue. But there was always seemingly a workaround. You're like, oh, well, we can do this or we can do that. Or, oh, there is this other company, you know, with the reverberating effects and the, the IV contrast issue is a great example of that. You know, those are totally unexpected. And in the face of everything else, you know, the, the hospitals right now and you know, even imaging centers in these cases are you know, truly playing catch up. They're playing catch up with millions and millions of people who put off procedures that may have once been considered elective, but are now going to be considered urgent. Um, people are coming in sicker. Uh, having all these additional issues. And there's really just no option. Um, I was working with a health system client on the contract, contract shortage issue and trying to navigate, you know, is there a way to work with regulatory structures back to our other topic we talked about with regulation and trying to balance regulation with trying to continue to provide care? And can we use single use files for multiple patients if we do these certain things? And it's really like, you know, moving pieces on a, a chessboard and trying to figure out where you can assume a risk that is not going to have a quality and safety impact on patients and may or may not actually be a regulatory problem all at the same time. And you're doing this with less staff, um, sicker patients uh, in units and hospitals where people are you know, at their wits end. Those who, have, who remain and keep working are you know, very burnt out, as we noted, you know, have experienced the trauma of the last couple of years. And so you can work out one thing, you're going to balance your supply, and then you're going to have to deal with whether or not you have a, a patient incident or event because you're doing those things with staff um, who can barely keep up. So, you know, yes, I think all those things are incredibly important. And the diversification and understanding on the supply chain issues is incredibly granular. And, you know, now with GPOs and other purchasing arrangements, it's not so easy as to say, just go to a different store. It doesn't work that way. Um, and it's very difficult to try to retread back up and get different processes in place and redundant processes in place while still managing your finances, because then you're paying to do all those things. And we're back to the same financial crisis Jamie talked about. Well, and the, the uh, governance challenge is, of course, the extent to which management limits the board's uh, uh, awareness of supply chain for all the reasons you and Jamie said. They're at the same time theoretically placing the board at risk of being a uh, failing to effectively monitor the organization under the Boeing line of uh, decisions. So it's a, it's a no win situation in many respects. Um, a couple of final questions for both of you, uh, you know, given where we are um, mid year uh, 2022, two and a half years into this, uh, do either of you have some thoughts on uh, universal truths that have come out of the pandemic process to date that in your experience are, are, of useful lessons to healthcare boards. Sandy, why don't we start with you? Sure. I mean, I think one of the universal truths is, you know, there, there's never going to be enough time. And that's relates back to what we're talking about. And I think it's going to be a matter going forward of trying to be able to communicate within and to the board in almost a snapshot fashion on some of these topics, because they can't, can't not know 
uh, but they're not going to be in a position to know deeply a lot of these issues, but they need to be able to understand enough to have that oversight. So to be able to have as you know, one of the universal truths, you, know, you, ha- you have to know and be in the know on things that were never important before um, in ways that you may not have learned uh, until now. Jamie, what about you? Well, I thought of several universal truths, uh, so I'll, get, I'll just give a couple to you and I'll divide them into two categories, governance and then kind of broader, more, more societal and health system. Uh, from a governance perspective, I think this has emphasized a couple of universal truths. The first one is there is no fixed, bright, shining, you know, immovable line that separates governance from management that it is inherently situational, that the, the notion of uh, what's appropriate for the board to do is very much dependent upon the, uh, you know, the issues confronting society and the individual issues confronting that health system. So boards who are you know, uh, reluctant to engage on an issue like supply chain because it's not the board's role uh, are abrogating their responsibility. So one of the universal truths is that uh, effective board uh, CEO relationships are in a constant state of negotiation. What should we be doing now? What's appropriate now? Um, and the line has to be continuously redrawn, especially in periods of crisis. So I think that's, you know, that's something that we're learning because I've I've seen many many boards hesitate to engage on the issues you've raised because traditionally it wasn't a role of the board. Um, so I'd say that's one. I'd say the second universal truth is. Uh, our, our voluntary community-based model of governance is insufficient for these issues and insufficient for the future. Um, you know, when you need boards that are packed with experts on particular issues who are willing to devote the time and the energy and assume the liability risk, the reputational risk, um, uh, you have to pay them you ha- and you have to hold them accountable to performance standards. And so I think uh, another universal truth we're seeing is we cannot use the same model to govern the most complex organizations in human history. You know, the, the, the large American hospital, the, the healthcare system, even a small hospital, uh, we cannot use the same model to govern them that we use to govern our local churches and YMCAs and, and small community-based organizations. Um, so I think that's a universal truth. And then the last one I'll pull back to a societal hospital perspective is um, we recognize, I think now we can't be all things to all people. Uh, is the purpose of a hospital to take care of sick people? Or is it to keep populations healthy? And I think one of the things we learned uh, in the pandemic was we got caught in between those two curves and it devastated us. And I think unless there is a major societal conversation and and an investment of resources, a universal truth is we can't do both well. Uh, And so we're going to have to make uh, either an implicit or an explicit decision about what the purpose of healthcare systems really is. And that's especially true in this period of financial challenge when most organizations are retrenching and pulling back their horns uh, and moving away from, you know, issues that are that are uh, conducive to population health so that they can survive. So I think that notion that you can talk the talk of population health while you're taking care of sick patients, but you cannot walk the walk and do both. And, um, you know, and I would point out to you, even organizations like Kaiser Permanente, that had 80 years of experience in doing both, uh, still took massive hits financially uh, as a result of the pandemic. And so balancing this, what is the purpose? You know, what 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 is the purpose of what we're doing? Um, I think is going to be uh, a, a fundamental governance issue that we're going to be facing uh, going forward that's been exposed because of the pressures of the pandemic. 
Well, before I let you both go, I want to seize on a, uh, a word that you just used several times, Jamie, and that is purpose. And as many of our uh, listeners know that the question of the purpose of a corporation has been a part of a broader uh, governance and corporate de uh, debate over the last several years involving ESG issues. But more principally, we have seen, oh, I guess over the last 18 months or so, an increasing willingness of corporations to, to exercise their public voice on leading social issues of the day, whether that be um, uh, election matters, whether that be voting right matters, whether that be um, issues relating to abortion rights, things of that nature. Uh, and now comes gun control again. I would like to ask both of you, do you believe that it is appropriate for hospitals and health systems to reconsider whether they should be leaning in with their uh, public voice on leading healthcare issues of the day, or if they are given the time pressures that you've discussed, best to stick to what they know what they have to do and leave the public discourse to others. Sandy, what do you think? I think that's a classic damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. <laughs> um, there's definitely an argument to be made for providing and making clear the support for the community, particularly with cases like what happened you know, recently with the horrific school shooting of reinforcing that in the community you are as a health system there for support and that there are resources available if individuals need help. Um, but it gets a little trickier, I think, when you start to look at things like abortion and even gun control in certain parts of the country, where there, to some extent, is a rational argument to say, I'm coming to you for my health care, not to get into you know, things that might be deemed political with me. I'm not coming to you for politics. I'm coming to you for a flu shot. Um, so I think it's a hard line to draw sometimes, you know, but from a, a social conscience and social responsibility standpoint, I think we're seeing a lot more of that um, than ever. And there seems to be an expectation that there is some statement made or some affirmation made about, you know, a certain business's uh, you know, role in some of these matters. But I do think it, could, it can backfire and has to be done in a way that is sensitive to you know, your healthcare operation. Um, and to understand that you're dealing with a number of different uh, perspectives and views in the communities and with you, which you operate. And in some communities, those messages might sort of backfire and get you some attention you may not have counted on. Jamie, I know you've got some thoughts on this issue. I do. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I was listening to Sandy and I agree with her, but I, th I think the challenge becomes that healthcare organizations and their leaders are forced into the issue when previous, quote, you know, pure healthcare issues suddenly become politicized. So, you know, so if I show up and I'm sick and I don't believe in COVID and you tell me I have COVID, you cannot avoid being in a political environment. If I show up and I want ivermectin and you tell me there's no data that shows that it works. So that's been part of the problem is, you know, when, when we've seen in society the politicalization of science, the politicalization of healthcare, it's almost impossible for hospitals and health systems to insulate themselves from that. Uh, you know, to create a pure Switzerland model where they say, look, we, you know, we take care of everybody. And once you show up here, we'll take care of you. But take care of me the way I want to be taken care of or take care of me the way your ridiculous science says I should be taken care of that I happen to disagree with. So it's almost impossible to get away from that. And and I think, you know, as you asked the question, I was thinking there was a marvelous quote, marvelous quote. And I wish I'd come up with it, but it's from a gentleman named Reed Anderson 
who is the publisher of a little itty bitty newspaper in in uh, Benson, Minnesota. And his quote, you know, talking about this from the perspective of being a, a, a community newspaper was the easy part is speaking truth to power. The hard part is speaking truth to your community. And so, the, you know, the great challenge, Michael, of what you're talking about is this is one issue for the leadership of a large multi-state health care system. It is an entirely different issue for the board of a critical access hospital in a small community where everyone on that board lives and works in that community. And that brings us back to that question of what's the best way of governing and how can a board, if it if this does become either by choice or by necessity, a role of a board and leadership uh, to, you know, to be a leading voice. Um, this then kind of calls back the question we briefly touched on earlier, which is, can you do this in the old voluntary community based model of governance? And I would say, no, you can't, um, because board members will say, if I do the right thing. I'm poisoning the well in which I and my family live. Um, and I've seen board members get death threats. I mean, I've, you, I've, got, I've got a collection of emails I've received from members of the community that my health system serves, uh, you know, uh, which, are, which I try to be you know, uh, humorous about, but you know, uh, are really quite frightening. And if I lived in that community, which I don't because I'm an outside board member, I wouldn't be able to take a, you know, kind of a, a dispassionate, humor, humorous view of it. I would be worried about my safety and the safety of my family. Um, and so that makes it incredibly difficult. So I think it's a I think we cannot avoid it. Uh, but I think our current models of governance and leadership uh, make it very difficult for us to deal with it. So it's it's yet in another of almost irreconcilable conundrums that we find ourselves in as healthcare leaders. Um, so that's my that's my kernel of, uh, of thought. Well, you, you know, when the New York Yankees start using their Twitter feed to broadcast uh, uh, messages about corporate purpose and, and the political issues of the day, you know we have to start facing the, facing <laughs> this issue. Jamie Orlikoff, Sandy DeBarco, thank you both so much. What an interesting conversation. You've, you've given us a terrific overview of the patient care and safety issues that are currently being presented to the healthcare company board uh, and the challenges with respect to engagement that they present. Uh, you've really made the case, I think, for greater rather than reduce board engagement on these issues as we continue to evolve to endemic status and deal with, Jamie, as you said, the financial crisis that many institutions are having at the same time. And the whole question of uh, increased engagement is got to be the part of a conversation to have with management but a sensitive conversation, no doubt. So we thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.